All right, everyone, welcome back. This is Ryan Selkis, and you're listening to Masari's Unqualified Opinions, where each week I interview crypto's top builders, investors, and personalities to discuss the key trends in the industry. You can discover more about Masari at masari.io. But for now, let's get right into the episode. It's going to be a good one. This episode is brought to you by Nexo, the only lender offering instant crypto credit lines, which let you use digital assets as collateral to get cash in 45 different fiat currencies and stable coins. You can also park idle assets with Nexo and earn up to 8% annually. It's a company that's a strategic partner of exchanges, OTC desks, and crypto funds, all of which borrow, lend, and grow their assets using Nexo. Explore Nexo.io or reach them at institutions at Nexo.io to learn more. Save money this tax season with LucaTax, the crypto tax software I've trusted since 2014. LucaTax supports unlimited transaction uploads from major exchanges and wallets and offers live chat support if you get stuck. They help optimize your capital gains or losses reporting so you can max out this year's tax refund. LucaTax is offering a special discount for Masari's Unqualified Opinions listeners. Just use promo code MasariTax and you'll get $5 off the normal price of just $19.95. Go to L-U-K-K-A-T-A-X.com and save money this tax season. This podcast is presented by BlockWorks Group, one of the top blockchain events and media production companies I've worked with. For exclusive content and events that could help you with insight into the crypto and blockchain space, check them out at blockworksgroup.io and you will not be disappointed. All right, everyone. Welcome back to Masari's Unqualified Opinions. I'm Ryan Selkis at 2BitIdiots. Have another fantastic episode today to share. We've got the co-founder and CEO of Arwen. Sharon Goldberg on to talk a little bit about uh, non-custodial trading and custody and all the work that her team has done um, to advance uh, that particular bit of industry infrastructure. Uh, first off, Sharon, I should start by congratulating you as, as you just announced the successful completion uh, of your fundraise uh, that wrapped up at the end of last year. I went through a fundraise last year. We share mutual investors. We raised a similar amount of money. Um, yep. So I know how uh, how treacherous and difficult that environment <laughs> was. Uh, people think that the nadir of the bear market was um, the end of 2018, which is true if you're a trader. But if you're raising venture capital, you know that there's a yep. little bit of a lag on yep. when the excitement starts to pick back up. So um, big milestone, and uh, and you and I have had the opportunity to to meet uh, a couple of different times now uh, at various events. And uh, we've been a, a fan of Arwen's from afar, but really excited to introduce uh, the company to more of our listeners and, and watchers and subscribers um, because uh, it, we, we obviously think that uh, you are towing the line between building a bit of in institutional infrastructure that is important, um, but that it is also maybe towing the line uh, with the original cypherpunk ethos uh, of, of crypto and, and the, the concept of being your own banker, or, or at least taking more control um, over your participation in the crypto economy. Um, so why don't we start out, I, I like to ask all my guests about their origin stories, because it's fascinating, especially at this stage, to hear all of the uh, different drivers that ultimately mm -hmm. propelled people into this industry. Um, so wh wh what was your background? How did you initially get into crypto? And, and then how, as an entrepreneur, did you settle on Arwen as the project that you really wanted to drive forward for years? Yeah. So actually, I, I didn't start out as an entrepreneur and I, I still find that description to be a little odd because my, my background is really technology. Um, I'm a computer science professor at Boston University and I started out as a PhD student really. The, the, my interest in this field came during my PhD um, and it was really only about two and a half years ago that I kind of jumped out of academia and started this company with one of my PhD students. So so the story is really, um, really doesn't start from entrepreneurship. It starts from really technology and engineering and being an academic. So I started um, my PhD at Princeton in 2004, and I actually started out uh, doing optical engineering. I was doing um, like conveying, um, conveying communication messages over light at the time in 2004. And so somehow I fell into this project, which we were studying encryption using light. So using light to encrypt signals. And then, mm -hmm. you know, about 
three or four months into that project, I realized I didn't understand what encryption actually was. Like, what is the definition of encryption? Like, we all kind of know, but I didn't really know well enough to actually, you know, develop systems or think about them. And so I took a course in cryptography at Princeton in 2005 with Boaz Barak. And, um, you know, at the time I was an engineering student, so I didn't really understand cryptography at all because cryptography at that time at Princeton was taught as a theoretical computer science topic. Mm-hmm. And um, I went into this class and I just loved it. I just, it was like, I fell in love with it. I ended up deciding that I was going to switch my focus for my PhD. I ended up switching advisors, uh, moving from electrical engineering into computer science and really, really wanted to work on cryptography um, in 2000 after I took that course and it was like this thing that happened where I I got involved in this course and I just like couldn't do anything else I was just spending like three days a week out of five studying for my crypto class which was like really unacceptable because I was supposed to be producing research as part Mm -hmm. of you know my PhD and I wasn't doing any really so that went on for you know four months I finished that course I switched um, I switched into uh, computer science and then I realized I wasn't very good at being a cryptographer because I still wasn't a computer scientist Um, And so I started working on something I did know, which was communications and networking. And um, back then, 2005, 2006, I was sort of in the early cohort of people working on network security, so applying cryptography to internet technology. Um, And that's what I did for my PhD. And I finished in 2009 um, as a network security researcher in academia. At the time, no one really knew what network security was in academia. I remember having to answer questions about whether I was a theorist or was I building systems. No one really understood. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, became a professor at BU in, in 2010 and uh, was there for a while. And, and by the time, you know, 2015 came around already five years in, everyone understood exactly what I was doing because there were a bunch of us who had kind of come up at the same time and were doing this type of research, which is really applying cryptography to systems. Um, and so that's my background really f- from academia. And I've always, you know, all through my career, I've always been really drawn to like, building systems, getting people to use them, but also with like crazy new advanced technology. Um, and, and so I did that for, for a long time in academia, really focused on um, the internet. So, you know, internet routing, DNS, like the naming system. I did a bunch of work on network time. So how your computer gets time on its clock, all that stuff, you know, really the plumbing of the internet. I just love that stuff. And then in 2013, I have a PhD student join my lab. His name is Ethan Heilman. Spoiler, he's mm-hmm. my co-founder. Um, and he was obsessed with Bitcoin. So I was aware of Bitcoin up until 2013, but I wasn't obsessed with it. But Ethan was obsessed with it. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, having him in my lab, um, you know, initially he came and he worked on like problems that I was interested in. So our first two papers together are actually on internet routing security. But then after that, you know, it was like apparent that we were going to have to work on Bitcoin. So in 2014, we started working on Bitcoin um, and we wrote a couple of papers together. One of them is um, Eclipse Attacks. So, you know, if you're interested in, in blockchain technology, you're probably aware of the standard attack on blockchains, which is basically that you surround a node with adversaries and feed it bad information. That's called an Eclipse Attack because you've owned all the connections to that node and you can just lie to it and tell it all these things. So we actually were the first really to think about that in the context of blockchains um, and Bitcoin in 2015. And Ethan was, um, you know, Uh, we had a bunch of uh, improvements to the Bitcoin protocol that we came up with as part of that paper that Ethan actually ended up contributing to Bitcoin Core. And that was sort of where this whole thing started. Um, We did a bunch more things together. One of them is Tumblebit, uh, which is a a mixing protocol for Bitcoin um, that we did in 2016. And that was really when we like started to notice what was happening in the industry and the amount of excitement and innovation that was happening in the industry. And we, we, you know, I was looking as a professor at like some of the stuff that people were doing at that time, um, it's hard to describe. It's like, it's like take your most brilliant first year grad student who just has really no sort of training and how to think about this really advanced technology and is just taking the latest and greatest things and just throwing them together and coming up with new systems. And there were like many, many projects like that. And it was really, really interesting to, to see that happening. And we were watching that. Um, from inside BU and Ethan and I were just like every month we were like we need to start a company we need to start a company and um, and so we did in uh, in middle of 2017 um, and that's how we that's how we started Arwen so but I, I never really uh, it wasn't in the plan like I, I kind of thought it would be interesting to, to, to do to work on a startup or to work at a startup but this was just sort of a perfect storm of like interest in what we were doing 
um, watching what other people were doing, looking at what we knew how to do and just saying like, we have to go out and try and see what happens. And so here I am two and a half years later, still on leave um, from BU working at the start. <laughs> uh, that, that, that tends to be how it happens when you fall down the rabbit hole. Um, what, yeah. um, can, so what, if anything has changed about the direction and, and, you know, general focus uh, of the company, because, um, I think the problem that you're working on now in, in terms of uh, basically facilitating exchange without giving up control or, or custody of your own assets is uh, in, in many respects, you know, the holy grail for security without losing all the benefits of, of this highly liquid tradable uh, asset class. Yeah. I mean, so there's a lot of things I want to say here. I, so I think the reason I'm in this space to start with is this whole aspect of what we call, you know, non-custodial, the non-custodial nature of a lot of this trading or settlement or, or security. All of that stuff is what fascinates me, right? So what is so interesting about blockchain technology, right? I can have control of my asset by holding cryptographic keys and I can do things with my asset, but I'm not trusting any single party. I'm trusting the blockchain. And that is just really almost like the holy grail for cryptography, because what cryptography actually is, is you look at your systems and you look at all the different points of failure and you just try to get rid of them one by one. And in, mm -hmm. in you know, traditional cryptography, we always have this notion. It's like almost like a cop out of this trusted third party. So if you look at, for example, um, if you look at, for example, TLS, which is what secures your connections on the Internet, HTTPS, you know, we all see the little lock in the corner of our browsers. Like at the end of the day, what is securing TLS? It's actually these things called certificate authorities, which are trusted to certify the correctness of public keys. And one of the things I worked on, you know, you know, previously is just like the amount of places that you can attack these certificate authorities because they're essentially single points of failure. And it's even worse. In fact, it's like multiple single points of failure all through the ecosystem. So when you look at cryptography and you look at like the way these systems have applied, it always kind of goes back to this one single point of failure. And this is what we hate as cryptographers, right? And so when mm -hmm. the whole blockchain technology burst onto the scene, like the 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 fascinating and 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 breakthrough aspect of this from a technological sense is you've eliminated this trusted party. And so, you know, you talk about cypherpunk or libertarian, like I'm, I'm really a cryptography academic in background, but we always look for like, how do we get rid of the trusted third party? And blockchain does that. And that's the reason that it's fascinating, right? Um, and so when I look at the space and when I like why I'm in the space and why I think almost everyone on my team is in the space is, is the same reason is that we, we look at this technology and it, show, it, it just allows us to do things in a way that eliminates risk, eliminates centralized agents, eliminates trusted parties. And that's fascinating. And that's something that's impossible, you know, in the regular world. You just can't do that with money, with fiat. You can't do that with stock certificates or corn. You can't do that with, with traditional assets, but you can with, with blockchain assets. So, you know, when I, when I look at the space, like there's almost like, and, and you know this, like there's these kind of two streams running through the space. You've got this stream that is just sort of taking traditional financial uh, infrastructure and just reproducing it, right? So we have like custody, we have, you know, I'm going to be your custodian, I'm going to store your Bitcoin the same way that your bank stores your dollars, right? Mm -hmm. Or you have the sort of uh, the complete other approach where you have the non-custodial where you're going to hold your own keys and you're going to control them and no one can tell you what to do with your Bitcoin um, including the party that wrote the software that's allowing you to move the Bitcoin around, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I clearly just, you know, deep in my soul, I belong to the second camp of like wanting to allow um, the full power of this technology to be used, right? So that's kind of the two, the, the, the like what brought, brought me in. Now, in terms of the company itself, we're not actually focused on the custody problem. We're focused on the settlement component. And settlement just mm -hmm. means how do you move assets around when you have two parties that are transacting? And so what we're doing is we're, when we, when we think about settlement, I really think about it as like a two-party protocol where there's like Alice and Bob and they're trying to move assets between each other. Alice doesn't trust Bob and Bob doesn't trust Alice, but they want to swap those assets in some way. Um, mm -hmm. And there's an easy way to solve this problem, which is both Alice and Bob trust a third party and allow the third party to, to settle the, the trades, right? Um, and that's what we have today at centralized exchanges. That's what we have some of the clearing houses that are being built by some of the custodian players in the space right now. Um, mm -hmm. And that's really, you know, that's what we do in traditional finance. And that works and it makes sense, but it doesn't take advantage of the full power of the blockchain and it doesn't, you know, 
it's not the reason that I got into this space and a lot of people that, that, that are part of this space uh, got into the space. So, you know, um, what we really want to be doing with this technology is demonstrating that you can do more uh, with crypto assets than you can do with regular assets. So, um, so you know, where that puts us um, in the space is that essentially we want to allow people to custody their assets however they want, right? So I'm not going to, I have my own opinions, right? I love some of the non-custodial institutional products that are out in the market right now. I think they're so cool and amazing that people are actually using this technology now in a non-custodial way for big money. It's just really incredible, some of these players that I'm sure we all know. But there's also a whole bunch of you know, third-party custodians that are essentially acting like a bank. They're holding your assets for you. You can't really control them. If that party decides that you don't have access to your assets anymore, then you just don't have access to your assets anymore. From our perspective, we're happy to plug into all the different parts of the ecosystem, but the way we want to plug those parts together for settlement is to allow people to maintain control of their assets through whatever solution they want to custody in. So if I choose like a, a uh, uh, like something like a BitGo, which controls my assets on my behalf, right? And I and I could not get my assets out if uh, if BitGo doesn't want me to. And um, you know that's fine. Um, but we still want to maintain control. You should still maintain control of your own assets where you've chosen to place them and not, you know, have to trust your counterparty or trust some kind of other centralized clearinghouse with those assets. So that's really our approach is to facilitate this settlement um, without having to really kind of take the assets out of the control of the place you've decided to put them in custody. And, and th there's uh, three different players here uh, that you alluded to that, that are you're, you're interfacing with, with this protocol. So there's the OTC players, the custodians, the exchanges, um, mm -hmm. the, the, Protocol itself is centered around cross-blockchain atomic swaps. Before we get into the weeds of how this works, just just define that uh, at at a high level and 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 give the explain like I'm five explanation for how exactly those types of trades are executed. Right. Um, so. The idea is the following. If you have two parties, Alice and Bob, that would mm -hmm. like to do a trade, what an atomic swap will do, so for those people who can actually see me, Alice has her assets and Bob has his assets. What an atomic swap will do is it simultaneously swaps Alice's assets with Bob's assets at the same time. So you cannot have an outcome where Alice has both her asset and Bob's asset. And mm -hmm. you could also not have a case where Bob has both his assets and Alice's assets. And this is really important because you have two parties that potentially don't trust each other. You know, you don't want to have your assets in the other party's control if you're not sure you're going to get the other, um, the other asset back. So what an atomic swap guarantees is that if two parties are going to swap something, um, it is guarantees that either the swap will happen or it will not happen. That's what an atomic swap does. Um, I'm so I'm so glad that you gave that explanation with your hands too, because maybe we have <laughs> the maybe we have the first uh, TikTok video that we can we can work with on that. We so can, we're going to oh play no. some music and we're. <laughs> I, well, we, no, we wouldn't we would we would do that to you unless you give us permission. I can um, see it first. Uh, yeah, right. We'll we'll we'll, we'll co-edit it. We get creative. Um, okay, so uh, explain then the the different settings. Um, and, and different players here that you're ultimately integrating with. What, what does this process look like to connect a ledger wallet, for instance, to a major exchange so that using the uh, R1 trading protocol, you can trade on the exchange while still just passing these assets seamlessly uh, and, and on a non-custodial basis. Right. So, you know, I'm going to keep it at a high level and then I'll go into the different use cases of the protocol, right? So the idea of the protocol is like this. If you would like to atomically swap assets, if you would like to do what we're calling it a simultaneous swap or a simultaneous send now, just because in finance, the word swap has um, other connotations that really have nothing to do with settlement. Um, but anyway, so in, in the simultaneous send or atomic swap protocol, the idea is that you have Alice and Bob um, and they are going to transfer their, um, their assets into an on-blockchain, um, you know, multi-sig address where the signatures are controlled by uh, 
Alice and the counterparty. And it's not just your basic multi-sig that you're thinking of in your head, like Alice and Bob have to sign or two of three multi-sig. It's actually more complicated than that. But it, the idea is just to think about this multi-sig smart contract or escrow that you, that you put your, um, you put your um, assets in. And then um, when both of the escrows are set up, you know, Alice's escrow and Bob's escrow, then you can effectuate the swap of the assets across those two. So that's really at high level how the, the protocol works. And what our protocol really does is, you know, first step is transfer and the second step is swap. That's what, that's what we're doing. So we, um, we have since, uh, I think it was April of last year, we have been live on a centralized exchange, KuCoin, to allow non-custodial trading on a centralized exchange. Um, and that is being done using an RFQ instrument. So that we, um, we launched last year and you can use it. And actually, we just recently, like a few days ago, released a new uh, front end for that app. So you can, um, you can have a, uh, an improved experience now when you trade on KuCoin non-custodially. Um, and so what I, I guess what I wanted to talk about today was that, you know, we've been in this market for about a year with a product that's live. And um, we were looking at a lot of different places where this product fits in. So what's really interesting about our product is that we actually started out with an RFQ instrument. RFQ means request for quote. So in a request for quote instrument, you will go to the party that you're trading with, let's just call it the counterparty. You will say, I want to sell um, one Bitcoin. Please quote me a price you get your price and then you either accept it or not, but the price is locked in. So that quote is, is held for you and you get to choose if you want it or not. So mm -hmm. we actually um, began, uh, you know, launched with, with an, an RFQ instrument. And then as we were out in the market, we realized that RFQ is actually being used quite frequently by in the OTC market in the bilateral trading market. And, and in fact, there's streaming RFQ systems these days. There's more and more stuff happening with like fast RFQ, but generally speaking in the OTC market, there's a lot of RFQ activity. So what's been happening is that we, we launched with RFQ on KuCoin on an exchange. Um, and then we sort of had a, a choice. We could have launched, you know, more trading instruments that would work mm -hmm. with a centralized exchange. So we, we could have added limits, limit order support. And actually, if you go read our white paper, we have a full description of how to support limit orders, various different kinds of limit orders. Um, and there's a, a variety of order types that people expect when they're trading on a centralized exchange. So we essentially had to make the decision, like, are we going to build more trading instruments or are we going to kind of like double down on the RFQ instruments? And so, you know, we're a small team. And so what we've decided to do is really double down on this RFQ and go into where it's really being used, which is in the OTC market. And so that's what's been happening um, in the last few months. And so we're really focused in on this bilateral trading market right now um, and applying our protocol and modifications of our protocol to that market to facilitate this trustless exchange of assets between uh, two parties that don't necessarily trust each other. But it's really also more about like the, the, the trust for me. Again, I come from a crypto background. So when you hear me talk, I'll always talk about trust and risk because that's just where my head is. But at the end of the day, what this is actually doing for people is it's removing like a lot of the sort of ridiculous process that's in place to settle these OTC trades. Um, it's very low tech process actually for a lot of players in this space. And you'll have things like... Um, someone sending an address to someone else over a chat client and then sending it over email as well. And then you have two versions of the address. You make sure they're the same. You type them into your wallet. You send a million dollars worth of Bitcoin. You wait for the other side to call you and say, I got your million dollars worth of Bitcoin. And then you wait for them to send you back some ETH or something like this. Right? So this is like the lights turned off. Um, Okay, there we go. So this is like, this is very low tech. And we're also talking about like huge money involved in these trades. So this is a super interesting area to go expand our technology in because not only are we making it more secure, but we're also really streamlining the process. We're taking away the phone calls, we're taking away the trust transactions. You know, our system will be watching all the blockchains. You know, if it's a Bitcoin to ETH trade, we'll see the Bitcoin, you know, come in, we'll see the ETH come in, we'll notify both sides that it's happening, they can verify that it's happening, and then they can execute the swap. So we're taking away a lot of this manual process that people have to work through today, 
um, when they're settling bilateral trades. And, and in particular, you know, that, that's why we're really interested and excited about working in this space, because not only have we been sort of like RFQ from day one, but we're also like, it's also the settlement process in that space is just so clunky today. Um, it's sort of rife for improvement. And so we're really excited about expanding into that area. Do you work with uh, existing systems for, for OTC order execution, or, or is this a new front end that someone like Jump or Genesis Trading or, or these other yeah. um, mega OTC desks have to incorporate? Yeah. Um, well, our plan is to integrate as, mu- as much as possible. So um, we are you know, in conversation with a lot of the uh, players you might think of to, to get this integrated. So yeah. Um, you know, generally speaking, um, we, we want to be where the traction is. So, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of platforms that people are using to move assets around, um, to move these big money assets around. And so we want to be as close to those platforms as possible. You mentioned um, the, the communications issue uh, of, yeah. of just sending something via email or via, you know, whatever chat application you're talking about. Um, yeah. What, what is the typical window of time that, that you know, many of these quotes are, are open? Because the markets can move so quickly. Um, and I'm sure it varies, you know, desk by desk. But um, what have you, uh, is, are there technical limitations on the window of time that you're able to execute a trade uh, using Arwin? Or uh, is it really at the discretion and, and, um, and you know, parameters that the, the desks themselves uh, stipulate? Yeah, so it's interesting because what we're getting into right now is really like um, post-trade settlement via Mm -hmm. like a netting approach versus like, you know, real-time settlement of a trade. So Mm -hmm. Arwin that you can use today on KuCoin is doing real-time settlement of a trade. And so what that means is that like when you do your trade, you know, the second you accept the quote, that is the second at which you actually received the, the, the asset that you've purchased. Right. So that's how if you use Arwin today, it is doing a like instantaneous settlement on a per trade basis um, in the in the um, OTC market. You know, we can do both. So we can have, you know, instantaneous settlement on a on a like individual trade basis with an RFQ instrument. That is, you know, that's exactly what we're doing on a centralized exchange um, right now. We can also, um, you know, we're expanding the, the technology to support also the netting approach. So what's really interesting, I don't know how many people know this, maybe everybody knows this, but I found this really interesting, um, is that, you know, you'll have an OTC, um, you'll have an OTC trade between, you know, like a, a counterparty and like a big desk, and uh, it'll be for like some big amount. And actually, the trade doesn't settle immediately after uh, the trade is made, right? So, so when, when these trades are made, there's this moment in which, you know, we agree on, you know, it's one Bitcoin for $10,000, let's say. Um, we agree, like, right now, but the actual movement of funds doesn't happen instantaneously upon agreement. Like, it's actually settled by the operations team of the, of the desks, and the two operations team will actually go through this, like, manual process of moving the funds around. And that could actually happen even one day after the trade. So what's really interesting is that the quote is actually taken, you know, maybe at 6 p.m. today, but the settlement doesn't happen until 9 a.m. tomorrow. So, you know, for that use case, that's, that's, um, that's sort of a slightly different way of sort of packaging our technology. But we are, you know, we're able to support that with some of the stuff that we're going to be coming out with soon. The post trade. Uh, and, and how many assets are you supporting Today. So right now you can use um, you can use um, Bitcoin, Litecoin, Bitcoin Cash, and Ethereum with the existing Arwin that we um, that we have. I mm-hmm. don't know if I can announce like specifically the assets that we're going to be supporting with the, the next round of um, releases that we're going to have. But let me just say, suffice to say, it includes Bitcoin and Ethereum. So we are. Um, you know, we 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 um, uh, you know after two years of, of working on this stuff, we're pretty. Uh, quick at, at pushing out, you know, Ethereum and Bitcoin uh, smart contracts and multi-sig escrows and things like that. So so that's really our, our starting point. Um, and I guess one thing that I do want to say in, in that regard is that we really are always working natively on the blockchain that we're talking about. So if I say we're supporting Bitcoin, I mean we're supporting Bitcoin on the Bitcoin blockchain. 
Ethereum on the Ethereum blockchain. We don't have our own blockchain. We don't use any pegs. We don't have inter-blockchain mm -hmm. communication. It's just straight, like, this is Bitcoin, this is ETH. That, that's how we move the assets around. Yeah, and, and that was going to dovetail into my next question, which is you look at ZeroX and Kyber and, and some of the other decentralized exchange protocols. They're all focused yeah. on Ethereum and ERC-20s right now. If you look at some of the interoperability projects, Cosmos, maybe Polkadot when it launches, um, the, you know, they're, they're kind of early on, but, but those are typically the names that come to mind in terms of, of base layer um, blockchains. Whereas the approach you've taken is inter-blockchain and layer two, um, which seems unique, but how, how do you view the, the non-custodial exchange landscape and your positioning versus some of the, the Ethereum DEX protocols and uh, the interoperable base layer blockchains that that uh, seem to be taking uh, between the three approaches. I, I don't know that we can really tell what's going to take off or, or what's ultimately going to mm -hmm. be the, the winner, but um, I'm, I'm curious how you've contemplated this. And I've thought a lot about this. I'm trying to systematize the way I think about this. Okay, so, you know, I... Personally, I really strongly believe in our approach, obviously, because it's our approach and we've invested two and a half years into thinking about the world this way. But I really strongly believe that at the end of the day, like the asset that you're moving has to be the actual asset. So there's a difference between Bitcoin on the Bitcoin blockchain and a peg to Bitcoin, right? So saying, for instance, let me give the sort of like most extreme example of this. Um, uh, BTCB, for instance, the, the Binance Bitcoin. So mm -hmm. Binance Dex has uh, the ability to quote unquote support Bitcoin. What does that mean? Um, it means that there is this asset called BTCB, which is issued on the um, Binance Dex, Binance chain, excuse me, and it is pegged to Bitcoin. So what that means is that one uh, BTCB corresponds to one Bitcoin. Now, how do we know that that peg is actually correct? right? This is the same question that everyone always asks with Tether. How do we know that one Tether equals $1? It's exactly the same question. Well, you have to sort of trust the issuer of the Tether or the issuer of the BTCB, right? So this notion of pegged assets, we see it in a lot of different projects. Um, Binance Dex is one. Waves platform has some of this. There's a bunch of different places where you see these sorts of pegs. And these pegs really, um, you know, even though they're being used in a non-custodial platform, they have a very significant pegging risk, right? Because you really don't know what is backing that peg. So for us, we don't have any of that. We really, if we're talking about Bitcoin, I'm talking about Bitcoin on the Bitcoin blockchain, and I'm never talking about anything else. Um, with regards to, um, and, so, and so you do see a lot of DEXs that have these assets that are just pegged with this, I don't know what to call it, maybe a free peg, or I don't know what the correct terminology is, but there's no way to verify that the peg is accurate. You just have to trust the issuer of the pegged asset. So that's, that's one piece, and I would say that's on the extreme side of, of risk in terms of... Um, you know, having to trust a third party with, with something. And in particular, it's the correctness of the peg. And then there's a, a bunch of other new approaches that are pretty exciting, um, like the um, inter-blockchain communication approach from the Cosmos um, community. And then there's the TBTC, which is a, a peg of Bitcoin on Ethereum, where there are protocols being built to actually sort of help you verify that the peg is really accurate, right? Um, with the, uh, for example, um, the inter-blockchain communication, what they're doing there is they'll have a group of parties that will be sort of locking up Bitcoin on the Bitcoin blockchain and then issuing this pegged version of Bitcoin on their own Cosmos blockchain. I don't know what the name specifically of the blockchain, but it would be some sort of tendermint chain. So that's pretty cool. But again, we're trusting that set of federated parties to not lie to us about the existence of the actual Bitcoin. So there are some, you know, there are some issues there about the correctness of the peg. It, it's sort of similar to kind of things we think about when we think about proof of stake. But again, we have these few parties that we that we have to trust. And, and, and so we don't have any of that with, with the, the approach that we have. And then with the TBTC, there's actually a quite complicated uh, protocol that, that actually allows you to verify. And there's a variety of different places where, um, you know, things are more or less risky, but it's really cool. But again, you have a lot of machinery there to enforce mm -hmm. this peg. So, so I think that these are all important and awesome that people are, are building them and that the community gets to try them and see what they do. And, and I, and I do actually love the fact that like, you know, you have TBDC and now you can trade Bitcoin on the, um, you know, on all these ERC 20 DEXs. That's really cool. But you know, 
there's still this pegging risk that's there. So for us, um, we, we really, you know, moving into the space of really large trades and in the space of really large trades, I, I don't want to have to go explain to people like what this peg is, what's it doing? Like, why should you trust it? Do you want to put $10 million through this peg? Maybe you don't. So that's, that's kind of where, where we land. We, we really want to be like native on the actual blockchain itself. So wherever the asset is issued, that is where we will be moving it around. Um, so, you know, maybe we'll, we'll change gears a little bit as I uh, talked about at the onset. We, um, it, it makes sense that an institutional audience will eventually graduate to the same mindset that many early adopters have, which is to, you know, be more in control uh, over instant settlement, to completely eliminate the trusted counterparties, which have proven vulnerable time and time again. Um, at the same time, this, this does feel somewhat exotic. So to talk about the, uh, at least through an institutional lens, can you talk about the fundraising process and ultimately um, who you were targeting, how you were thinking about uh, positioning mm-hmm. this as an mm-hmm. infrastructure bet when most other institutional focused uh, or, or kind of large trading software companies are trying to build prime brokerages. They're trying to build actual custodial yeah. services. They're, they're basically going right. the complete opposite direction. Um, as you, and as you think about those types of entities, there's quite a bit of spending that's required for um, just compliance and, and, you know, security and, and whatnot. Okay. So, I don't agree that, that everyone is going in that other direction. I, I think that okay. the industry is bifurcating, in fact. Mm-hmm. I think that there are certainly entities going in the, we are going to be a prime broker, we are going to go get you know a trust company license, and mm-hmm. we're going to be a money transmitter or whatever it is. Um, those are really smart and you know good plays, but they're not everybody's play. Right. There mm-hmm. is actually, you know, a, a growing group of, um, of custodians. And I'm only talking now about the custody market. Like you have Unbound, you have Curve, you have Fireblocks, you have a bunch of these players, Casa, right? There's a bunch of players that are actually saying, no, actually, we want users to make the decision about when their assets move. And we don't want to hold the keys and we don't want to be a trust company and we don't want to be a money. Tra- right. So they're not taking the, the regulated centralized bank type of approach, they're taking the self-custody approach. So when you talk about the fundraise, um, I I just, you know, we're always, every time we hear anything about a custody company, we immediately like, who are these? What are these? What are they doing? How do we talk to them? How do we see if we can work with them? Like, we're very, very interested in all of the companies in in that space and all of the different Mm -hmm. ways they're doing things. Because for us, it's just a way of storing keys and we just want to use keys to move crypto around, right? Um, So, uh, sorry, we don't want the keys. We want someone to keep the keys while we use them to move crypto around. So, Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think... I think that there are both types of companies in the space and I think it's extremely exciting that both exist and that people are actually out there like really using some of the non-custodial technology, not just only gravitating to this like traditional banking approach. So, you know, like there was a time when I I remember I was fundraising, you know, I don't know, maybe two years ago or something and people were saying, well, this is non-custodial. Everybody needs custody. So I'm not going to fund you. Like that actually happened. I think at the, like maybe the first time we were fundraising and it was really, it's really funny. And at the time I was just sort of like caught off guard. Like I didn't know what to say. And this was also before a lot of these companies, like I think it was before I'd heard of Anchorage and before I'd heard of like Unbound and, and all those other companies. So I was like, okay, that's not my point, right? Like, of course people need custody. I'm not after, like, saying that nobody's going to have custody. I mean, the coins have to be somewhere. The keys have to be somewhere, right? The point is, um, how are you actually moving them around? And so there's different ways of moving them around. One way to move them around is give them to a third party and ask the third party to move them around for you. And in fact, that's what you do when you're on a centralized exchange, right? Mm -hmm. Or that's what you do when you're on a centralized clearinghouse, like the DTCC, you give your assets to this party and then they move things around for you and you trust them to not, you know, mess things up or lose your assets. So, you know, while everybody needs custody, what we're really focused on is the settlement piece, the movement of assets, but we want to do that without having the, the, the centralized party. So, you know, I think in terms of fundraising, the, the kind of the first time we went around, there was a bit of a, like, 
having to, to sort of iron out this narrative. And it was very early though, you know? And so we actually did have investors that would say to us, like, we're not going to invest because you're non-custodial and we believe in custody. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I can say, I remember that happened to me with one investor and I just sat there like, uh, <laughs> Was it, well, was it, was it, was it a, was it a mainstream uh, investor or was it? It was like, no, it was a blockchain investor that said this to me. And I I was just like, oh, I don't know what to say. And then afterwards, I mean, now it seems laughable and this was two years ago. So like we didn't understand Mm -hmm. the market two years ago, the way we understand it now. I mean, we collectively as a community, but, um, you know, people, people did take that, that, that line. But I think with the, the recent fundraise that we did actually was, um, I, I didn't see a lot of that, um, I didn't see a lot of questions about like, well, you're non-custodial and people are going to want to custody their assets because I think people understand that like our, our value proposition is like, good, custody your assets where you would like to custody your assets. But when you're settling, you shouldn't have some other third party that's now taking control of your assets, right? You should be able to settle, but maintain, you know, control of your assets where you've chosen to place them, not in some other third party that you now have to trust. So, I mean, that message was, 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 was possible to convey, you know, the second time around. I feel like the the biggest thing that Arwen solves is it finally splits the custody and exchange function because the dirty little secret in crypto is that most people use exchanges for custody. Even though you say you're not supposed to, not your keys, not your coins, uh, you know, you see all the exchange hacks. The, the, the reality is that's where the liquidity is. The major exchanges are the top funded organizations in the entire world uh, when it comes to this ecosystem. And so they have the most engineering resources, they have the most security spend, they they have the most regulatory oversight. It becomes a little bit easier. Well, and they're the oldest too, right? So they've just had longer uh, amounts of time to prove themselves. But um, step one to kind of removing those counterparties is natural monopolies is just being able to split the custody and trading elements um, more definitively. And, and to date, that's not really happened. You're starting to see that dissipate a little bit. Um, and, and, and certainly, you know, Arwen, I think, presents one possible option for... for yeah, but even let's talk about your use case. Let's say there's an exchange, let's call it Exchange A, and you love this exchange. You think it's like the best exchange. It's so secure. It never got hacked. You really trust them with your assets, right? And you decide, you know what, I want to custody my assets on this exchange, exchange A. Um, But now you want to, let's say, go do an OTC trade. And there's some dealer out there that you just found this amazing price for some Bitcoin you want to buy. Um, But like, who knows exactly who this dealer is? Do you trust them? Do you want to send a million dollars of worth of Bitcoin to them? Like not really knowing. No, actually, you want your assets to stay inside exchange A, right? And that's actually Mm -hmm. a use case that we can help with. We can facilitate a swap between, you know, your assets at an exchange in custody and exchange and you know, this, uh, this dealer who you may not feel as comfortable with as you do as with the exchange, right? So, so for us, like, it's really just about facilitating the movement wherever people feel comfort, comfortable storing their assets. You know, the, 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 the way we kind of like burst onto the scene was to say, well, we shouldn't be custodying our assets at exchanges at all. You should have them in a custodian or you should have them in self-custody. You should have them in your ledger. You should have them in like something like Anchorage, you know, whatever it is. Um, but, um, you know, the, 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 the thing that we're now finding is that really people have their opinions about who they trust with custody of their assets. And maybe it's self-custody, maybe it's third-party custody. But the point is that when they're doing trades and when they're doing deals, we want to facilitate those types of um, that settlement between parties that don't necessarily trust each other. Because it's really limiting the ecosystem if you can only trade with people who trust sort of the same custody solution that you trust, right? Um, and mm-hmm. so that's what we want to break through with this product. Makes sense. Um, what um, what if if anything have you changed your mind about in the the last six months with respect to either the institutional market or the um, the evolution of the atomic swap market? Because uh, what what I find fascinating about um, the state of the industry right now is so much inter blockchain communications and, and swaps uh, architecture is more or less going to hit the, the market at around the same time. And it happens to coincide with the emergence of quote unquote ETH killers, right? So it's, you've got, on the one hand, you've got these uh, smart contract platform wars. Uh, at the other, you have finally a set of native tokens that might be in- interesting for an institutional 
investor that you know most likely being a crypto hedge fund um, versus you know someone like fidelity uh, opening up support for cosmos or polkadot which might still be a, you know a ways in the future yeah um, how how have um, or how will some of these impending launches impact your strategy when it comes to support when it comes to uh, using you know layer two settlement versus uh, base layer settlement if, if you have a, a system like polka dots or, or cosmos that becomes a little bit easier to work with over time so it's a really interesting question I think for us I don't think it changes too much to be honest mm-hmm. um, we are focused again we're Bitcoin and ethereum focused at the moment in terms of like what scripting languages we support if we wanted to you know bring in like a, an east to atom swap we that's something we could do we would need to support the um, the atom contract like scripting language which is just you know, not that hard to, to work with. It's actually very easy to work with that what they, mm-hmm. they've developed there. Um, and then that would just be like an, ad- an additional leg to what we've done. So, you know, you can trade more assets, um, settle more assets against each other. So I don't see that as causing us um, any change in the strategy because as I said, you know, a couple of questions ago, we, we really are staying away from this notion of like inter-blockchain communication through pegging or through colored coins because we don't think that, um, it's going to be something that's acceptable for really large movements of the assets. I mean, we could be proven wrong. I could be proven wrong with this, but I think when people want to move Bitcoin, they want to move actual Bitcoin. They don't want to move a pegged version of Bitcoin or, um, you know, some Bitcoin that a federation has said is Bitcoin and has issued on another blockchain. But like, who is this federation? Mm-hmm. Is it really the Bitcoin blockchain with all of those miners that are actually sitting there mining? Or is it like, you know, five or six machines in a data center somewhere, right? So there's a really big difference in the level of security you have with these different types of, of technologies. So from my perspective, I think it's like, I, I think this is like, this is our community, you know, in the space, the, the set of people that are working on um, cross blockchain protocols. We, we are a community and we're all, we all sort of have the same, the same problems and the same um, ideas. Um, and I'll talk a bit about that in one second, but um, you know, I think our approach remains, um, you know, focusing on the native assets because we just think that it's just a more secure and less complex way of, of doing things. And we're very comfortable working across many, um, many different types of smart contracting platforms. Now, what I do want to say about my brothers and the other companies who are v- developing cross-blockchain technology is that I think it's, um, I think that they're, they're the, the, you know, I think that there needs to be a way for these layer one blockchains, like the new upcoming, like you called ETH killers to really incentivize um, the smaller companies to, to support their, their chains. And um, there's a big, um, we talked about fundraising. There's a big funding inequality here in the sense that like my company is an equity based company. We don't have a token. We recently raised 3.3 million, which is like pocket change for a lot of these projects. So, Mm. um, you know, I'm hoping that, there's, we've already seen some proposals like in the Zcash community to provide grants to developers building on top of Zcash. And that's really incentivizing because, you know, why, the reason I'm saying that these other projects are like my brothers and sisters is because, you know, when you support a new blockchain, you need to support their block explorers, you need to support their nodes, you may need to support their light clients. How good are these light clients? Are they full of bugs? Are you spending half your time pushing uh, fixes to these third party, you know, software that you've integrated into your, into your platform how many developers do you have doing that right and it's expensive it's really expensive right and especially because if you're you know doing innovative things like a lot of the cross blockchain companies are doing we are stressing these blockchains in ways that they maybe didn't expect and so that just like you know opens more you know more more bugs so i really like what the zcash community is doing with these grants um for projects because that gives like actual reasonable and sustainable amounts of funding to allow us to actually support a lot of these chains without having to basically take in vc money like sell a portion of the company in order to deal with other companies technical debt so Mm -hmm. i think um if anyone's listening to me from uh from layer layer one blockchains i would love to talk to you about like what uh you can do to help companies like ours build support for your technology when we're small and we don't have um you know quite the same amounts of funding that um that these bigger companies have because ultimately what we're doing is we're providing utility to these to these chains 
and we're stressing their tech in a way that they maybe didn't expect, which is really good for them, right? Because the tech actually will improve. And you will see, um, you know, developers from from companies like mine pushing upstream um, patches to different things. So we've done a bunch of things, for instance, for Bitcoin Cash. It turns out one of my developers is just always sending things up. Um, you know, we find something, we fix it and we push it up. So, so I think that's just generally good for the ecosystem as a whole. So if I can stand on my soapbox for five seconds, that's what I would say. Well, you know, it's fascinating and, and, and maybe that's as uh, good a place as any to, to wrap up. Cause I know we're, we're getting short on time here. Um, you know, we've seen that as well, right? And, and whether you buy into the quote unquote fat protocols thesis, um, where the lion's share of the returns are going to go to these protocol tokens and, and these, you know, uh, asset-powered networks. Uh, w- whether you believe that or not, the current reality is that's the breakdown of funding and, and deployable capital in the industry, right? So, um, you know, we, we see this ourselves with our registry initiative. You know, some projects that have raised, you know, tens, hundreds of millions of dollars will say, oh, well, you know, we're, we're, why should we be engaging with Masari and, and, and paying this license to be on your registry? And my answer is because look at how much money we've raised and look at how many analysts we have. <laughs> and like, you know, if you're not going to put some skin in the game, how are we supposed to track every single change that, that your team is making on a daily, weekly basis? Um, and I think that's true for uh, all types of infrastructure companies. Uh, I obviously uh, certainly jives uh, personally and, and, um, it, it creates an interesting dynamic that I think is very unique to crypto, uh, where everybody agrees that, that some of these different bits of infrastructure are needed, but exactly how they get funded, uh, is, is, you know, still very much up in the air. Yep. Um, Sharon, uh, it's been so great learning a little bit more, uh, about the company, about the project and, uh, and where can people find you find Arwen and, and learn a little bit more, uh, if they want to get involved or. We are uh, in Boston. Should, we are yeah. <laughs> we are all about Boston, Boston, actually. Good. So we are we are in Boston. We're a team out of BU, and I think a majority of the team is actually uh, out of BU, including me, including my co-founder, even including people who graduated before I even got to BU. We have one person like that on the team. So we are in Boston. We'll be here and um, MIT Bitcoin Expo in a, in a couple of weeks. Um, would love to to meet people there. Um, and then with regards to you know trying out what software we have, we um, we just recently put a new front end on our um, exchange trading software, which applies our mm-hmm. protocol to non custodial trading on centralized exchanges. So you can try that out right now. And then in terms of the um, expansion into the bilateral settlement um, in the OTC market, that's still uh, pending. I'm going to be talking talking a little bit more about that um, in a couple of weeks at the, um, at the expo at MIT Bitcoin expo. Um, and that's going to be, you know, more, you know, more software that you'll be able to, to try out um, will be coming in a, in a few months. So. Excellent. Uh, well, I'm a Boston college guy. I won't hold that against you. <laughs> Other than that, uh, it was a, it was a pleasure uh, finally having the chance to, to do this episode. Uh, I know uh, it's, it's been long overdue. So uh, good luck. Uh, with the rest of the year and uh, hopefully we'll we'll have you on for another update soon awesome okay thank Thank you you. and to everybody tuning in uh, until next time be good peace that's a wrap thanks for listening new episodes of unqualified opinions go live weekdays at noon eastern time you can follow me in the meantime on twitter at two bit idiot if you want to continue the conversation or troll me otherwise i'll see you next week